Do you remember the flood of... There's been lots, haven't there? Which flood? Cultures remember cataclysmic events. Cultures around the world remember cataclysmic events. They retell it as stories, write it on cave walls or perhaps onto papyrus and manuscript and books. We remember cataclysmic events. Friends, for the last few years, last 10 years, we remembered the floods at Rochester of 2011. Uh, recently, a few of us, a small team from Reforming, were up cleaning up and helping clean up at Rochester. And we were cleaning someone's house, and I'm looking at the person who was with me at the time, and we found, as we cleaned out and took out their TV cabinet and everything that was ruined, out of the TV cabinet spilled a DVD, and the cover had Remembering the 2011 Floods. And now we've just been through another 1 in 100 year flood at Rochester. People in floods face devastation and loss. Bushfires, of course, are also a cataclysmic event that bring loss and horror. But last few weeks, we've just been thinking about flooding so much in our part of the world. It's not just Rochester, is it? There's towns and farmland that has been affected so dramatically and the loss looms large for many. Then there's the other floods that are just so big it's hard to fathom the size. So when we come to a passage like this that Meg just read, we can come thinking, well, we understand floods at Rochi or perhaps Michuka, Kerrang, but this, this doesn't seem real. But friends, in the history of the world, we've had cataclysmic floods that, well, this, of course, makes them pale, but they're huge. In the 1931 flood in China, I don't know if you know this, but in the 1931 flood in China, it is estimated 3.5 million people died. Cultures remember cataclysmic events. And we would do well to remember the flood in Genesis 6 to 8. It's part of the Genesis narrative. This episode happened in human history and we do well to remember it. It's an episode of judgment. But it's actually more than that. What we need to see this morning is the flood of that day is more than an episode of judgment. It's actually about God's amazing grace. And how amazing it is that God is able to save through judgment. And that God chooses to save through judgment. And here's the big idea. God can keep you safe in the whelming flood. Because God is the impassable God. And this is the first point we see there on the outline. In Genesis 6, what do we see? Firstly, we see something that we need to hold dear to us, but perhaps you've not heard of much. We need to hold dear the impassibility of God. I want you to pick it up there. Go back to Genesis 6. You do need a Bible in front of you to see why this is so important. In Genesis 6, 
we saw the last episode, those first four verses, but we pick it up in verse 5, Genesis 6 verse 5, you see, we need to see what the Lord sees. The Lord sees the extent of human evil. And he sees it, by the way, not just what we see. We see human evil often in human actions, don't we? So the news reports human evil. It tells you what people did, but doesn't often tell you why they did it. But here, I want you to see what God sees. God doesn't just see human evil in action. He sees it in motivation. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did you see that? God sees the heart and what does it do for God? It, it grieves him. Look at that verse. There's some strange things said now because for the first time in Genesis in this narrative, here's an episode where we read this, God regrets and God grieves. We even read that he is sorry he has made his creation. Let's have a look at 6 verse 5. I'll read it again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention or the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God said, I'll blot out man from whom I've created in the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is grieved and God regrets and God is sorry? Does it mean that God has emotions like us and he feels like we do? Does it mean that if that is the case, and do you know your emotions? Imagine your emotions now projected onto God. If God has emotions like me, like you, does that mean that we're in danger of him just having a bad day and then he's going to wipe us out with another flood at a moment's notice? And even if this flood is not worldwide... Could it mean that these words mean, if you and I upset God, well, that's the last straw, God says, and so Rochester flood happens. Is God grieved, regretting, sorry? Is he emotional like you and me? This is where we get to take comfort from the impassibility of God. Theologians speak of the attributes of God. Things that are integral to who he is, part of his character, is communicable and incommunicable. In other words, there are attributes that are communicable, they're they're like us. You could say, well, you know, God has some things you could say we have, but there's things that are incommunicable. He's not like us in many ways. So there's communicable things God and humans share by analogy, even in an inferior way. For example, God is love. Can humans love? Yes. But it's not like God in that sense. It's not as much. It's inferior in that sense. We don't love as perfectly as God does. Humans can be creative. God is creative. Of course, we're in the book of Genesis and so forth. We have a sense of justice. God has a deeper, more perfect sense of justice. We we will 
kind of like God, but we never truly like God in these things. They're the communicable attributes. But here are some incommunicable attributes. Only God has, such as he is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And when we look at these attributes, it's important for us to hold that high and held and believed for our comfort when it comes to this verse. Because if God is not different to us, then we just know an emotional God who gets upset easily like you and I. So you read those verses in Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7. People read these verses and say, see, this is the God you worship. He's just emotional like you and I. He just has mood swings and emotional swings. And and you know what? If you tick him off, he's going to come at you. I don't want that God, thanks. Well, that's a caricature of God. The Lord God regretted he had made man and if it grieved into his heart, he is sorry. What does it mean? Well, of all the attributes of God, his immutability, that is, his unchangingness, he's unchangeable, he doesn't change, and his impassibility, that is, for God... He is different to us in his affections. This is something that's a comfort to us. We need to see this from the get-go. Why? Because we get judgment wrong. We understand judgment incorrectly if we just think God judges us because he's having a bad day. Now, God is immutable. He he doesn't change. Malachi 3 verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Who does change, by the way? We do. We often have swings. He doesn't change, therefore we read this. O children of Jacob, and why, does, why is that a comfort to us? Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, O children of Jacob, I don't change so you are not consumed. Because often our emotions are so flippant and consuming, aren't they? We fly off the handle and consume people at a moment's notice. We outrage culture. You disagree with me, I can't be your friend anymore. Not God. Go to the New Testament, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God in his nature is not susceptible to change. And with that, God is not susceptible to emotional change. Like you and I are, he is impassable. That is, his passions, impassable. Impassions are not like us. That's why the quote is on the service sheet for you. Westminster Confession, chapter 2, section 1 says so helpfully, there is only but one living and true God. New City Catechism, kids talk, anyone? There is one true and living God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions. Immutable. Now, why passions? The, the Westminster divines were making a distinction between human passions. So he doesn't have human passions, but he does have affections. They're different because God is distinctly different to us. And what's the difference? The impassibility of God means that God is not vulnerable to having fluctuating passions like humans. He doesn't suffer. He's not subject to what happens in the world and then all of a sudden it affects him so he gets in a bad mood. Why does that matter here? It matters because when we know God, we know someone who's more loving than we could understand. Like God can't be more loving than he already is. 
He can't be more just than he already is. He can't have more compassion than he already has. God's impassibility means he is more loving eternally. He he possesses love more than that. He is love. Now, we know that God does understand our situation. We know he sympathizes with us. How? Because of Jesus. One of the best commentaries ever written on the Old Testament is, do you know which one it is? You want to know what the best commentary ever written on the Old Testament is? It's the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. It's probably a good thing. We don't focus on the writer, we focus on the one it's about. And the writer of the Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the impassibility of God means we can be assured he's trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. It's about the consistent character of God. That matters, friends. So that when you read Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7, we're not reading about a God as revealed to us who is just being emotionally moody because things are not going his way. That's what we're like. That's not what God is like. What is revealed to us is God accommodates into human language and by grace he comes down to us like an adult coming to their knees to a child. He comes down and he says, my creation matters and I'm more eternally loving than you can understand and I have a greater sense of justice than you have. His impassibility is a comfort to us because it means he doesn't swing and change like we do. And because God doesn't change, he is trustworthy He has trustworthy love, true delight, true righteous anger and injustice. Because ours often we think, I've got a sense of injustice. His is better. My sense of injustice often warps around me, doesn't it? Even if I do sense injustice for others, often is linked to me. Because of God's impassibility, we can rely on him to never have his emotions be under the influence of world events. So that Genesis 6 verse 5, God is not surprised. We sang, he is sovereign over us. He has ordained all things. He's not surprised by this. But what he's revealing to us is not a reactionary motivation. He's revealing to us a righteous and true judgment. That's what the impassibility of God's about. The revealing of his affections, his emotions in this sense, is not him saying, hey, I'm feeling sorry for myself. Will you feel sorry for me too? Oh, poor God. Poor God, he's sad. God is sad because we ruined his creation and now we need to all feel sorry for God and kind of walk over and give him some comfort. That is not what this is saying. This is what it's saying. God is looking at his creation where sin has spiralled out of control and now he says for us to see in his word... I judge and assess the situation as deserving of judgment. And so in Genesis 6, we're here to see his judgment on a world full of sin. That's why he says, that's why he reveals his grief, his regret, his sorry that he made it. His judgment, his assessment is, 
judgment needs to come. I think when it comes to judgment, I get the feeling that immediately it just gets a little bit of pushback in our society. But not just our society, even in church. I think sometimes, I'm guessing there's probably churches, I'm not sure about us, but churches who kind of go, oh no, don't talk about judgment. My friend is here. Friends, we need to talk about judgment. We need to talk about it because people like victims of crime want you to talk about it. But more than victims of crime who come out of a courthouse feeling that there was no proper judgment given, we know that there needs to be judgment given. We need to, and judgment should not just come to the, those who commit crimes, it should come to well, those who wrong me, you know, I want judgment for that. But also, by the way, I wrong others and so judgment should come to my door, to my heart. We need to talk about judgment because it is the elephant in the room, so to speak. We need to talk about judgment because it's the only right thing to talk about when you look at a world full of sin. The world is full of sin, friends. Wickedness, evil thoughts, violence... And when the Lord looks at this world, he judges this, that every intention of the thoughts of the human heart is evil. But if that was the final assessment, what would the flood episode be? Genesis 8, with the last chapter of the Bible. And that Bible, if it were penned in those days, would be floating away. And there'd be nothing left. But for the grace of God. You see, in Genesis 6, verse 8, just after verse 7, verse 8, but, now ever you see a but in the scriptures? You see it in Romans a lot. The unrighteousness of humanity, but God. The judgment of God, but God. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favour is the word grace. It's the first time it appears in the Bible. Here is God's judgment. The whole world is full of sin. And that includes Noah. As we'll see next episode, not next week, the week after. It includes Noah. Noah's not a perfect man. He's got some family problems with his children and his parenting as well. The whole world is full of sin, including Noah. But what is the difference between Noah and the world? Noah just receives grace. He just gets grace. Noah's not righteous because he's a particularly good guy. He, he just receives grace and he walks with God like Enoch. He trusts in God. Going back to that Old Testament commentary, Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of, by God of concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for saving of his household. God sees Noah's household saved because he, the head of that household, trusts in God by faith. He's not a good man at heart. Rather, he's justified in God's sight so that he's blameless in his generation. By faith, he receives grace. And see the contrast here with Noah and everyone else? See the contrast with Noah and everyone else? Everyone else is not righteous. Everyone else is not blameless because they've not received grace and they don't trust God. And look at Noah. If Noah's righteous in God's sight, saved by grace, 
through faith, look at the world, it's full of wrong in God's sight. Now, this is interesting language here in Genesis. Look at this verse 11. Look at Genesis 6:11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Do we remember some words in Genesis that had the word filling? What was the earth supposed to be filled with? The language lingers back to the days when God created the earth. When everything was good, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? So that Habakkuk 2.14 would happen. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Very flood language. The earth is supposed to be filled with God's glory as his image bearers multiply and fill the earth. That's what's supposed to happen. But instead of God's glory filling the earth, what is filling the earth now? Evil. Evil is filling the earth. And as evil fills the earth, we see in verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the earth. And God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them and the earth. Here's more interesting word use, friends. The word corrupt here in verse 12 That word corrupt is the same word that God uses. It's the same word he uses when he uses the word destroy. In other words, God is going to destroy a world that has already been destroyed by humans. That's God's judgment. You've wrecked it. And so I'm just going to judge that and the grief of God leads to a just and right conclusion all bad things must come to an end and isn't that our future isn't that the message of revelation all bad things must come to an end forever Yet, God sees this whole world wrecked by sin, destined for destruction, and God now makes a rescue plan. And as you see on the outline there, it's in the form of the world's biggest flotation device. It's a floaty. Do you remember floaties? Anyone ever wear floaties in the past? Maybe you do now, there's no shame in that, but I used to... Um, you know, I, I've learned to swim, and that's a good thing. Not everyone can, and I get that. But so I, rem- I remember my mum making me wear floaties, right, and my embarrassment at using them. But then I also remember the feeling of being in the deep end of the Tamora pool with my floaties on and feeling safer. And what we see here is this flood of God against sin, the ark is a flotation, a rescue device. God tells Noah to make an ark. He tells him why to make an ark. We see in verse 17, chapter 6, 17, a flood will come to destroy all flesh. What's the way to get away from a flood? You need to float. And Noah's obedience to building the ark is, again, it's not because Noah's the best guy around. It's not because he's particularly righteous. But his obedience is just by faith. 
Notice this all the way through and think about this in your life. Living by faith is not just, you know, because you're extra special or extra powerful. You're more capable than others. Noah's none of those things. He just trusts God. God says, make an ark. Okay. So he makes an ark. He believes God's word. He trusts him. God is trustworthy, worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship. And as he makes this ark, notice this, it's not a boat for travel. There are no sails, there's no oars for power. There's no rudder. No conventional navigational equipment of the day for it to travel anywhere particularly. It's not designed to be a boat to go somewhere. It's just designed to float. It's a flotation device designed to rescue people in the whelming flood. It's a lifeboat. We see several times throughout this scene, Noah's instructed to take and, and get materials and make this ark because people, the whole world, are going to die. There'll be a remnant left. And the flood shows us the world, including the animal world, is important to God. It's important because he made it all. It's important because he determined that all's not well. It's important enough to save some. And then we see in the centre of this section, in chapter 7 verse 11, it begins. In the 600 year of Noah's life, see we're given details of dates and times because this is a real event. If you've ever seen that movie Noah with Russell Crowe, came out in 2014. That's it. Look, Russell Crowe's got some great movies. That is a terrible movie. So if you haven't seen it and now your interest is kind of sparked and you go and see it, firstly you'll notice, one, it's nothing really to do with the biblical narrative. It's apocryphal and a mishmash of everything else instead. And two, it's all about Noah and it's not about the main character in the episode who's God. But three, it just looks mythical, but that's not the way this episode's given to us. It's given to us as historical. There are dates and years, and yes, the Hebrew calendar is a lunar calendar, it's not a solar calendar, they go by the, they go by the, the months, or the, by, the, by the moon. But it's given to us in that historical perspective. A year, a lunar year is pretty similar in length, a little bit shorter, but it's given to us in that sense. So we see in the second month, the 17th day, it's on the calendar. They remember the cataclysmic event. They remember when this happened. Water burst forth, fell down and deluged everything for 40 days and 40 nights. This is powerful imagery. It captures the intensity of the flood. And we look at this language of the waters prevailing. 7 verse 17, the waters prevailed. Verse 18, the waters prevailed. Verse 19, the waters prevailed. Verse 20, the waters prevailed. The point being, people did not prevail. People have an attitude to water and flood still. You know, my dad, you know, sees flood water and just thinks, I'm going to triton. He's going to drive through it. Dad, no, no, no. They don't make tritons like they used to. <laughs> People don't prevail in flood water. And not in this flood. It's not as if there were people who could find some driftwood to find a mountain and then they would be okay for a while and say, 
people did not prevail. That's the point. Everything that had breath in it died, except what was in that ark. And at the end of that whole event, which we see really in the context of creation, is an uncreation, isn't it? Have you noticed that? The way the language describes it is, everything God creates is then undone. And what does he bring it back to? A formless, water-filled void. He's starting again. And Noah and his family and those animals are on that ark for almost a year. Can you imagine that road trip? And at the end of that, it seems like there is a world completely flooded. There is an ark and a pretty lonely place to be, except we read, God remembered Noah. Chapter 8, verse 1. After about a year, God remembers Noah. Noah sends some birds to scout about. Verse 15, God says to Noah, go out, bring out the animals too. And verse 17, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth again. It's a refresh, repeat command. God is starting again through Noah. And what Noah does is he was told to take some clean animals. So he takes some clean ones. He's got some spares, just in case you're wondering. And he sacrifices them. And that burnt offering, that sacrifice, is a reminder that judgment leads to death. But Noah and his family didn't die like everyone else did because of God's grace. The Lord smells a pleasing aroma. The sacrifice is good in his sense. And we see next week, sorry, not next week, week after, the details of God's promise for future judgment. But for now, see this. Friends, here is a once-off flood, but it's not just a once-off flood to look back to. It's a judgment that shows us in our future, with judgment to come, God can bring you through judgment. He can save you. Do you remember the judgment of the world? The judgment of the world, the judgment that is to come, God's judgment as he sees the situation and his justice executed in judgment is actually a daily life thing that should be part of our thinking and the way we plan our lives. It's easy to think it's on the calendar in the future and I'll think about it in the future one day. Do you not think that perhaps everyone who saw that ark being built, which would not go unnoticed... We're thinking, you know what I should put in my calendar? I should book my tickets. Uh, no, I do have a website I can find and book my tickets to that ark thing because I'm trying, I've got my family. Have we got some accommodation for some bunk beds? They saw it and they did not get in that ark. Do you remember the judgment of the world? God's judgment is real today. Cultures remember cataclysmic events. We need to remember God will judge sinners fully and finally. I think the judgment of God isn't easily accepted in our world for three main reasons in our culture. 
Firstly, there is the liberal type person, not the liberal party type person, but the kind of person who's just liberal or loose with believing this, believing God's word. Oh, that didn't really happen that way. And we think differently now. And we, we just kind of treat the Bible in a liberal way. The relativist type of person who often sees judgment as unnecessary, especially this sort of judgment. God's judgment, that's unnecessary. God just is going to accept everyone. Perhaps it's a universalism, but here's the problem with that. If you don't believe in a judgment against human evil, if you don't believe in a judgment that God will bring, you have nothing to say about violence, about victims of crime, about evil in our world. Secondly, there's the legalist. The opposite of the liberal person. The legalist says, oh yeah, judgment. Let's talk about judgment. More talk about judgment. But how does the legalist talk about judgment? For them, because they annoy me. See the problem with the legalist? What is a legalist? A legalist is someone that does this. Here is the standard in life. I just made it. There's the standard. Pharisees do this. There's the standard. You need to get over my standard. And if you don't make it over, judgment. Here's the problem with that. The legalist then looks at their standard. Ooh, that's a little high. Maybe I could jump over that. I don't think I can. I need to lower the standard. Now I can get over it. The legalist wants judgment, but just for anyone but them. The third person that doesn't really understand the judgment of God is that person that belongs to that increasingly pop-religious, pop-Christianity culture that doesn't want to speak about judgment ever. Here's the problem with that. Jesus speaks about judgment a lot. Jesus' words, Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus' words. Pop Christianity will tell you. Why is it called pop Christianity, by the way? It's not because it's popcorn and just so you didn't know. It's popular. Popular Christianity. Pop Christianity, pop culture Christianity will tell you that God loves you, but they can never tell you how much he loves you. And how much does he love you? You won't know unless you understand the judgment of God. We need to remember the judgment of God and then see the salvation of God, how to be safe. Because the very one who judges is the very one who makes this the way of safety. And how does he do that? He does it himself. In Japan, around many coastal villages, you can Google this, it's very interesting. Around many coastal villages in Japan, they found these old stones. Like milestones. They look like, you know what an old milestone looks like? Kind of buried in the ground a bit, a few feet high, well, a metre high. They found these stones. They seem quaint. Oh, look at old stones covered in moss. But on them, the old timers put an inscription. And it reads this. 
do not build your homes lower than this point. Many villagers ignored the stones and they built their villages and houses and cities below that point and they looked at the stones as a relic of a bygone era. They built their houses closer to the coast, they're more expensive, great place to live. It proved fatal. As you well know in recent years, with tsunami and flood, those who built lower than the stones were swept away. The message of judgment from God is the same. Repent and believe and be safe. The message of judgment of God shows us something about ourselves. It says sin is sickening. It's really a problem and it's destructive. It'll destroy you. It'll corrupt you, destroy you. That's what sin does to us. It consumes us. But it also shows us something about God. God is patient, particularly when dealing with sin. He is not with his passions like humans into random acts of judgment. He's impassable, he is just, and he's right. And the message of judgment tells us something we desperately need to hear. You can't save yourself. So the question is this, are you in the ark? We can't save ourselves. Are you in the ark? What's our ark? We read that passage that Meg read earlier, our first Bible reading, a cross-reference passage from 1 Peter 3.18. Did you see in that passage what the ark is? Jesus is the ark. Jesus is our ark. So the question is, are you in the ark? It's not, do I find a boat? It's, do you know Jesus is your ark? Do you trust in him? Are you all in with Jesus? Do you remember the judgment of God against your sin, your corruption, your thoughts of your heart even? There is a judgment to come. It is off like a flood. It is overwhelming. There is no saving yourself. But God, by his grace, has made a way. Because it is Jesus who goes to the cross and he's overwhelmed by judgment. He is flooded with your failures. He is shouldering your sin. He is the one who takes your judgment and goes under, under into death. He is your ark. Trust in him. And more than that, he's the one that then floats. Because he rises to life, defeating death and judgment and nothing can hold him down. He is the ark that stays floating today. He is your assurance of salvation. He is your place of safety. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded as we turn to the table in a moment that we are only safe in Christ. Reforming Church, as Christians, we pray this for you. As those who are in Christ, by union with Christ, stay in Christ. Stay trusting in Jesus and encourage one another to stay trusting in Jesus. If guilt haunts you, If problems put you down, when trouble comes to your life, if you don't live knowing that your judgment is dealt with by the judge who gets judged, then you will be flooded, you will be overwhelmed. Unless you remember this, you are in Christ. 
God saves from the whelming flood by faith in the one who shed his blood. Jesus holds on to you. Stay trusting in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the ark of Christ. Please save more people. Give them that joy of safety, of salvation, that they would know what it is, that you keep them safe from the flood to come, the flood of right justice and judgment against our sin. Thank you for your patience, for your salvation. We take comfort in these things and we trust in Christ. And we pray that we would have that assurity of knowing we are safe in the whelming flood. We ask with thankful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.